Hello and welcome. My name is Alex MacPhail and this is High Performance Teams. I'm a former aerobatics display pilot from the South African Air Force and I love talking about high performance teams, what makes them work and what we can all learn from them. In the show, we talk to race pilots, professional sportsmen and women, entrepreneurs, comedians, performing artists and more. Please enjoy and remember to subscribe. Good afternoon to you, everybody. Uh, today, it's a sad day. Aviation is uh, in pain, hurting once again. We've lost one of our fellow aviators, one of the Canadian snowbirds has gone down. Thoughts and prayers go out to the family, Jennifer Casey and the snowbirds team. This is a difficult time. Good afternoon to you. Welcome to the show. Today, I have a remarkable man and high performer. He's reached the top and set records as a player. He's then gone on and set records and reached the top as a coach too. Gary Kirsten was the first South African to play 100 test matches. He set a record in both ODI and test batting high scores. And he has the second longest innings recorded in the history of cricket, nearly 15 hours of batting. He's coached India to World Cup victory in 2011. And he has helped both India and South Africa to reach the top of the test rankings. My name is Alex MacPhail, and this is High Performance Team. Please stay with me. Gary, good afternoon to you. How are you doing today in Cape Town? All right, and you, Alex? Yeah, well, thank you. It's great to connect with you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. And uh, as we kick in, I want to just play this little video clip to just make a taster of what's ahead. So he just, he just knocked on the window and said, I want to go in next. Are we good for that? And I'm not going to say no. <laughs> Because again, I, like, I always liked him to finish games. I'd always with a hundred out because I think he was the best in the world at that. Um, so in a final, there's still a lot of runs to get. You know, I did have a second thought, but I just thought I could see it in his eyes. He just wanted to go back. You know, and we could. We were used to shifting the order around. We'd been done. We'd done it for two, three years, and then obviously to have a guy who loves all those situations going in. I mean, can't complain. Tony finishes off in style. India left the World Cup after 28 years. I think it's always dangerous to look at World Cups as fairy tales. You know, there's no such thing. Well, no such thing as fairy tales, but uh, surely a momentous, wonderful occasion. Those scenes at the end of that World Cup with uh, a big hit being carried around and celebrations. Tell us your thoughts and feelings on that day. Well, it was a long time ago, uh, nearly nine years, or well, nine years ago now, and um, I think it was just an amazing um, end end of a journey for me. It was three years of uh, getting up from uh, a kind of comfortable existence here in Cape Town and and uh, going into the lion's den, you know, going into a place where it's a little bit unpredictable. Um, I was a South African in an Indian environment, so a foreigner, um, but essentially just you know, working with a high-performing team and, and just trying to get the best out of them and help them be the best that they could be. But it was an incredible final day that I had with the team and, uh, and, a, and an amazing three-year journey. Oh, it sounds well. It just looked wonderful. It looked like, uh, you know, everyone's beaming and being carried around, celebrated like that on the shoulders. Uh, the, the team really appreciated it. And uh, you touched on a, on a few things there. But let's, let's back up just a little bit and let's start from the beginning if, if we can. Let's go back to your formative years and, uh, you know, growing up in Newlands. I believe your father was the groundsman at Newlands and you spent your childhood uh, on the Oval. Is that true? Yes, it was true. Um, I grew up in a, a sport-mad family, as most South African uh, kids do. Um, and we, yeah, my, my, my dad was uh, married twice. So I was part of this, of his second marriage, but all the four boys kind of, um, hung out together, although there was quite a big age difference, um, and we—it was all—it was just all sport, you know. So certainly, when I was in my high school years, I lived at Newlands Cricket Ground with my with my with my dad, um, and it was an incredible time. I mean, I just boasted having the biggest back garden in the <laughs> in the world, you know. It was just cricket in the winter in the summer months and. And we would just play. I used to love uh, rugby as well, so we played rugby in the winter months, and uh, it was just oh, amazing just to have that facility. Oh, wonderful, great! And um, you, you obviously took the, made the most of it, and you have, all of all of you guys made a, a significant effort at professional sport. 
Um, okay, so you've had that great formative time. Uh, your dad also played uh, sort of decent level cricket as well, but that was before the professional era. Was that right? Yeah, he played uh, first class cricket for Border actually, and then way back in the old days. And um, yeah, he just loved his his cricket. Um, and then obviously Peter, my eldest half brother, who was thirteen years older than me, was starting to make his way as a professional whilst I was still at school. Um, so we always looked up to him, and obviously it was isolation years for South Africa. So he went overseas to play county cricket to to build a name for himself. Um, so it was all about kind of just watching him and, and and using him as a benchmark to where we wanted to go. That's a nice thing to have. I mean, I see it in my three kids. There's a the, the younger ones always can just look and see what's happening, and they can almost get to things uh, you know years before their time because there's just that role model or someone's doing something which. Uh, you know, a five-year-old shouldn't be capable of X, but they see the older one do it, so they're going to do it. And I'm sure in your instance, it must have been wonderful. You didn't get to overlap, though, on the professional level with with Peter, did you? I did. We played uh, right at the end of his career. We played, um, I think it was, uh, would have been 10 test matches together. Oh, and um, if, if I'm correct, it's it's a long time ago and probably about 15 to 21 10, international. So it was great to have the opportunity to play with him but he was I was kind of a 20 what is it 27 28 at the time and he was hitting 40 so it was hard for him <laughs> <laughs> okay well you had a great career as an opening batsman um and uh you know you've you really defined yourself as someone that can just grind on and just maintain and as I as I read at the top of the show there the nearly 15 hours of batting so if, if you would maybe just indulge me for just a moment, how do you concentrate for 15 hours out there where people are just solely trying to get you out and you're just trying to make runs and stay in? How do you, how do you keep your head together for that long? Well, I think as, as a sportsman, we would always talk a little uh, bit about, you know, what is our performance flow? You know, when are you in the zone where you, where you can just go out and you can do something that you – have been trained to do for a for a long period of time. I think uh, batsmanship is actually quite a unique um, um, thing to be involved in. It's uh, it's uh, it deals. You have to deal with a lot of failure through through your career, um, but you're actually essentially training day in and day out for those very special moments where you have more control over the situation than you would typically have. So. As you can imagine, in the world of cricket, it's a very complex environment. There's a lot of variables at stake. You've got one chance. If you make a, even the slightest of mistake, you can be back in the change room. So it's really just understanding how best you can manage yourself to make good on the, on the performance. And you're trained to do that. You know? So like any industry, when you get into that situation where you're doing well, I know exactly what I need to do to extend that for as long as possible. Um, and, you know, as much as the opposition are trying to default you or get you out, um, you have the, the mechanisms and the ways of, of dealing with it and you, and you can go all the way. As I said, it, it doesn't happen that often, but when it happens, it's a wonderful feeling because it's, it's your moment to shine. Okay. Well, I mean, you've had a, you had a great career as a batsman uh, for a long time. You were the, the go-to man. And uh, certainly the days when I watched lots and lots of cricket as a, as a youth, it was always Gary Kirsten on the TV. And you had a particularly good run in the sort of uh, 96, the World Cup that time. And also in the, in the subcontinent, that was an area that you did well. Was there any particular reason why that was a happy hunting ground for you? Yeah, I think during the time that we started to play really good uh, one-day cricket under Bob Woolmer, um, I had a, a really specific role to play in the team. And I think if you can give anyone in any organization good clarity in terms of um, how much benefit they're adding the organization or your team, it makes people thrive, you know, and that's exactly what happened to me. I was I was doing the job I was best suited to. And um, um, that was thanks to the leadership that they just said, this is all we want you to do. And I just loved, you know, every minute of it and and really enjoyed the space. Um, I think the, the period of time in, in India, um, it was a great time to be an opening batsman for a number of reasons. One, the wickets were really flat. Um, in in those in those countries, and two, they had, uh, um, banned the bouncer rule, so you so you weren't allowed to bowl a bouncer, 
So it made it a little bit easier for opening batsmen facing the new ball against quicker bowlers, knowing that there weren't going to be balls flying around your head, <laughs> sure. which allowed you to be a little bit braver and, and you could, you know, you could take on, on a bit more. So I think I went through a fortunate period in batting where we had it in our favor, and especially as an opening batsman in the subcontinent where we're batting up front where the ball's coming on a little bit more, it makes it easier to score. Okay, well, you know, opportunities present themselves, but it's still up to the individual to take advantage of them. So, well done, you did. Yeah. And you certainly had a great run at that sort of period as well, scoring the record high scores. But okay, so you, you had a great career and we want to sort of move off the career of batting now. And you've, at the end of it, you retire and there's a period of quiet. And then tell me about the point where you seemingly applied to become the coach of India. I know that you didn't apply, I'm saying, but tongue-in-cheek tongue there. But how did this India coaching job come about? Yeah, I retired in 2004. And, uh, you know, I was at a point where I wasn't sure where I was going to go with my career. I was, I was like uh, any one of us 37-year-old washed-out sportsmen <laughs> who has to move into a second career. But it's quite a challenging time for professional sportsmen because you, you kind of earn well – all the way through your career, you know, I had a contract for 20 consecutive years. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then suddenly you, you are no contract and you're 37 and you've got two young kids at home, you know, and, and a family. And you think, well, in those days we weren't earning the, the, the kind of money, you know, the, the money the guys are earning today. They can, they can pick up a significant uh, contract and which will see them, you know, through the rest of their days, to be honest with you, some of them. <laughs> sure. But, uh, you know, for me, it was always, okay, I've got to build my second career as quickly as possible. So I, I didn't even take a week off. I, I, got, I retired in New Zealand in April 2004, and a week later, I was in an office. I rented out a place, and I just said, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to start working, you know. And for me, it was to, I just thought, you know, it's such a privilege having been one of the first South Africans since um, isolation to be, to, to be playing the game internationally. I went on you know, over 40 tours for South Africa. Mm -hmm. And I kind of got a real feel and flavor for what it was like to perform in other parts of the world. And I thought I had good value to offer. Um, so if I was going to stay in cricket, which was a natural place for me to stay, it was either commentary, which I didn't want to do, um, just because I'm quite a shy guy. I don't really enjoy <laughs> the being, being, the, being the face. Um, the other one was coaching, which I thought was a great opportunity because I think there you become an educator, teacher, a leader, uh, um, a mentor and I thought it was just like a really significant place to be so um, I didn't know where it was going to start but I, I got into coaching straight away and I didn't I wasn't sure I wanted to become a team coach I was running my own cricket academy here in Cape Town working with about 20 players um, built a nice little small business for myself but um, yeah I always had in the back of my mind I'd love to coach a cricket team so I went down um, at the end of 2007 and I phoned up the head of sport at UCT and I said would you mind if I come and coach the UCT first team you know and he said well what a pleasure we would love to have you <laughs> and I went down to three practices in that over that period and I think it was after the third practice I got a phone call from Sunil Gavaskar who's a famous Indian player and he said to me, would you consider coaching the Indian cricket team? And I nearly fell off the chair. I was like, what is this all about? I thought it was like a hoax. You know? <laughs> Whackhead getting you. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was someone trying to pull a fast one on me. And uh, I never replied to the email. And then I got a call uh, or another email two, two days later. And he said to me, you know, would you, would you consider it to come for an interview? Um, so I did. I went, I went to India and I went for, a, for an interview. Um, which was a, it was a, it was a scary prospect to be honest with you. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Anyway, I didn't, uh, I didn't have much expectation around the interview, um, but I was offered the job, you know, <laughs> and, uh, in bizarre circumstances because I had no CV to speak of. Um, you couldn't say you certainly couldn't do that in the aviation business. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I got I got offered the job, and you know, two months later I was flying to Australia to work with uh, some of the best cricketers in the world, you know, Tendulkar, Dravid, Laxman, Havajan Singh, Zaya Khan, MS Dhoni, Verinda mm. Sawag, and it was like quite an intimidating space to go into with very little experience. Sure. Um, I think the one thing that probably served my, served my, uh, in my favor was I had played 
professionally for 17 years against a lot of them, or all of them, in fact, and um, it kind of provided me with a measure of credibility that I kind of <laughs> knew what I was talking about. Yeah, okay, but there's a whole different side of things that goes on here now, uh, having looked at some of your interviews recently. When you go into India, this is one of the biggest sport-crazy nations out there, and it is for cricket, and they want you to be the guy to make them the best at cricket. And there's only about a billion fans who are expecting you to do that job. So what is that like, arriving there and being this almost in-the-spotlight guy as an outsider, firstly? But there's so many. It's such a big following. Yeah, I think the head coach of the of the Indian cricket team is probably, I would say, the biggest sporting job in the world. You know, it's uh, the follow. If if you just took it on pure following and support of a of a country of a national team. Um, but I think uh, I think in many ways what they were what they were trying to do is match me up. You know, they were trying to match me with the um, with the kind of personality that the team was looking for. They had previously had Greg Chappell um, as an Australian who had come in and been their coach. And what I could gather was it was it didn't it didn't end well there. Um, and you know, I found obviously found that, found out a lot of reasons why. And it was it was a, almost a clash of personalities and a clash of um, a way of doing things. And so I remember saying to myself, you know, you you, you need to be careful in terms of what you impose mm. on these players. Um, they're very talented players, but at the same time, they do need. Um, an influence, and they do need to see a way of doing things. But it was very important for me that I didn't just come and and, and dump my way on them as a leader of them. That I I got to to find out what they were about and what would make them tick. So I went on a a huge fact finding mission for literally three months of of the start of my job just to really get to understand these guys properly. Okay, what, what, what actually made what made them tick? Yeah. What so? What what is this the fact finding mission? How how do you go about that? What do you, where do you start? What do you? I just I started to ask a lot of questions, you know, and uh, I went from player to player, did a heap of one on ones, um, started to watch them at training, how they how they how they prepared for matches. I became very curious as a coach. I wanted to know what made each guy tick as an individual brand. Um, I wanted to know. Um, I asked very provocative questions. You know, how you how you going to improve as a player? You know, what what do you think you need to do? And then I and then I asked a lot of the team. I became quite demanding on um, how they operated as a group of people because, as you know, high performing um, teams uh, re- require to operate to a set of values. And um, you know, when I arrived there, I didn't see any of that. You know, I just saw uh, I saw things being done a certain way. Um, that for me were they 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 required some checking in with, mm. and we did it together. We did it collectively. I mean, we co-created a, the culture um, and how we wanted to operate. Um, and I think fortuitously for me is that I, I inherited a bunch of cricketers that were prime for high performance. I mean, they were really right there, ready to go. I think my relationship with MS Dhoni, who was the was the captain of the team was was um, I think it was a very very important leadership relationship. Sure. Because as a as a South African and an Indian, we kind of connected quite quickly. Okay. And uh, and I think he trusted what I want how what I wanted to do and how I could offer what I could offer the team as a leader. Okay. And then obviously you know he was a game breaking captain, the best, certainly the best leader I've ever worked with. Okay, well, can I just pause you a sec there? So you you've got this. You arrive there with this big fans and big expectations and the biggest sporting supported team on the planet. You've also got all these stars, but you see the sort of looseness of these great players, and and uh, and and they're not really gelled together. And you start from the sort of the ground up and build up, and you tie in nicely with the with the captain with MS Dhoni. But who's in your team besides the team that's on the field on the day? Your support team on the coaching side and the, the sort of behind-the-scenes people, who's in your team that's helping foster this sort of rebirth and regeneration of a new team that becomes this high-performing team and ultimately wins the World Cup? Yeah, I think that's a good question. You know, you, um, you need to build a, a group of people that essentially become your lieutenants. You know, they, they're on the ground. They're watching the behaviors, the culture, the way you want to do things. They're reporting back to you in terms of if they see anything slightly suspicious or see anything that doesn't feel right in terms of what you're trying to create. 
but let me say that it was a fairly organic process. It, it, it wasn't stru- overly structured. Um, it was probably playing into my philosophy and way of doing things that we, we allowed behaviors on a daily basis to determine, you know, how we wanted to operate, you know. Um, so that behavior became appropriate. That behavior became inappropriate. <laughs> okay. And, um, you know, it was my job to monitor it and then to announce what was an appropriate way of operating as a group of people. And I think uh, the, probably the, the most significant appointment that I made in my support staff, only because I could make one when I started the job, <laughs> was, um, was Paddy Apton, who was, a, who was a mate of mine, but he had also qualified himself up as an executive coach. And he had done quite a bit of work in the corporate space, but he understood sport and, and cricket. And um, I asked him to come on board because I thought he would add great value to the players in the team at a one-on-one level in the, okay. in the cut and thrust of high performance where winning and losing is on the line every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted him to help players deal with their vulnerabilities and the toughness of their situations. But as it turned out, he added great value to me um, because I was a new coach. And um, I think often as leaders, we don't get feedback, you know. We don't get mm-hmm. enough feedback in terms of whether we're doing a good job or not. Okay, so did he become uh, a bit of your sounding board at the same time? Yeah, he started to give me really significant uh, feedback, but, I, but some of it I didn't like to hear. <laughs> uh, but I think, I think importantly, um, I learned very quickly on the job. Um, so because he was a trusted source, you know, I sure. knew that. If he, had, if he had a very direct, harsh word to say to me about a behavior or something that I, I did or the way I led a meeting, um, he'd let me know straight away. Okay. Um, so I kind of learned how to, very quickly, I guess, how to um, yeah, be the best version of myself as a leader in every situation, through the wins, through the losses, through the high emotions through the difficulties that, that he was there to, to say this, that was appropriate, that was inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And ultimately as leaders, you want to try and, you know, we talk about in, in cricket, you know, as a leader, if you, if, you, if you haven't won the change room, in other words, if you don't have credibility with your players, you've got nothing, they're not going to listen to you. You can say and speak and shout <laughs> and do whatever you want, but they're not going to listen to you. So having that, you know, winning the change room and knowing that when I did say something that was quite direct and, emotional the players would get me you know and they would want uh, they would end up wanting to play for me and do well for me well, i like that term you use winning the change room and i know the, the barefoot coach i know you continue to work with patty in your high performance coaching etc so that's a, hopefully a conversation i can have one day as well but i remember at the time when you were getting into coaching you had a website and you recommended a great book uh, john krakow into thin air and i read it and that was great was there any books or any sort of external influence that stood out for you at this time going on to this big job coaching india I, yeah, I mean, I've, I've always uh, read a lot, um, and I love sporting autobiography, so I would have gone through, you know, all the top sportsmen, sports, sporting coaches in the world, you know, you know, from Mourinho to Wenger to Ferguson to um, Bill Walsh to, ah, I mean, you could go on forever across all different sports, um, and all, all I was doing was just is just trying to find out anything that could add value to my coaching, not necessarily to coach the way they coach, but to add value to to what I was doing. So um, that was fun. I think the the best book that I've read of late, or two the two best of late, is one is called The Team of Teams, written by General Stanley McChrystal, who wrote a book on the formation of the seals and how they make uh, life threatening decisions in a split second based on emergent intelligence. I really enjoyed that. Oh, great. Um, and then I enjoyed the culture code by Daniel Coyle around how how um, how teams operate effectively under uh, under different types of cultures. Yeah. So good. I've made, <laughs> I've made some notes now. I've got some more reading material for the next few <laughs> weeks. Thanks, Gary. Okay. Um, now you say so you've built your team. You brought in your key player, and you're starting to win the change room. And uh, talking about change room now. So now I want you to to, to fast forward to that World Cup uh, final the day before, and uh, and you tried a little different tack on the night before, and you bring in Mike Horn. So tell me about how that came about, and the influence, and how it worked that that evening. What was the result? Well, we know the result the next day, but what was the result that evening? Yeah, I think it was. You know, it was quite a nerve wracking time for everyone. Um, we had pulled in. 
Mike had come in early in the tournament, and he is a friend of Paddy's. Um, so I got to know him through Paddy, and uh, we pulled him in. We said, let's just go for it. And and the players really warmed him. You know, he's a incredible adventurer. He's a great storyteller. Um, and you know, I always said to him in all the times that I was with him, I said, you know, you don't have to tell us how to play cricket. Just just tell us what you did yeah. to get over the line, you know, or not get over the line, very importantly. You know, I think there's great stories through failures as much as there is success. And um, on that night of the uh, before the World Cup final, um, you know, we had, we had run our race in terms of pre- preparation and, and uh, you know, getting ourselves up and ready for the next day. We had played Sri Lanka so many times. Sure. Prior to that World Cup, we we I made a decision that we actually weren't going to talk about cricket at all on the night of the on the evening of the World Cup final, and this was going to be Mike's floor. You know, I just said to him, "All we've we've spoken enough. We do, we actually don't have to say anything about tomorrow's game. Um, there's there's enough intentionality around it. There's enough motivation. Uh, what I would love you to do is for 40 minutes." Just tell us a story of one of your adventures. And he chose a brilliant one. He chose the a North Pole walk where you had to make a decision with um, a day to go. I think he'd kind of walk for 97, 98% of the walk. And, and he made a decision with a day to go that he had to turn around because he got frostbite. Ooh. And he reckoned it was a life-changing decision. I mean, if he if he hadn't turned around, he would have died in his in his view. It was a great story. And, and I mean, a couple of the Indian players had tears in their eyes, you know. And it was a, it was a fantastic last evening, just to, yeah, it was almost like we were the journey. It was coming to an end, you know. We had one more day left, and we spoke throughout that World Cup not about the burden of winning the World Cup for 1.2 billion Indian people. We spoke throughout that World Cup about the journey that we were going on with the Indian people. Mm. And it kind of took away the pressure a little bit because there was there was just heaps of pressure around. But we tried to build that language that it was actually a journey. We were on walking hand in hand with Indian people rather than they expecting you to win because the burden would have been too much. There was too much pressure attached to that performance um, sure. throughout the World Cup. And we tried to, you know, we were very fortunate because it was a home World Cup. We had opportunities to get away, you know, and um, see family. And mm. so we try to normalize the environment as much as possible, whereas other countries, you know, especially the teams that were making the playoffs, you know, they'd been there for a long time. And we felt that we could take advantage of the fact that we were at home mm. and make it as homely and, and feel as real as possible in, in that space. Mm, okay. Well, it's, it- <laughs> I feel like you are you're reading off the script. You're answering questions before I even get them. <laughs> it's <laughs> wonderful. Um, a couple of things about uh, then the next day. I don't want to spend too much on it, but just so you change strategy on the day, and that's where that clip played at the beginning of the show, where um, MS Donia knocks on the window and says, "I want to go in," and and you could see it in his eyes. And you've also mentioned before that this is something not completely unusual to change strategy on the day. But talk to talk to me about this idea of having the strategy. You know, like I related to flying. So we go off flying. The strategy is to go from Johannesburg to New York. And on the way, you know, there's, there's tactical decisions to be taken along the way. You have to go around a thunderstorm. You might have to climb, descend. You might have a sick passenger. You might have some technical anomaly. And the tactical decisions will take over. But then you have to get back on strategy. So just talk to me about this change up where he knocks on the window and you get that knowing look and you have that uncomfortable feeling and then you go ahead and it works. Yeah, I think we had built the team up over three years on uh, being ready to be really flexible, being ready to move from a kind of a plan A strategy, which was based on the makeup of our team and how we wanted to play the game, to a, to a plan B, to a plan C. We were comfortable with the unpredictability, and that's what I love about the Indians, actually. You know, they don't mind the, the risk that is involved. And, I mean, we made some errors as well. We, we made some strategic decisions that we got wrong. Um, and, you know, um, I never once had a player come up and say, well, you know, that's no good and we, we don't buy into that. It was like if we if it didn't work, that's fine. We'll move on. We take the learning and we move forward. So I think we had prepared ourselves for an occasion like that where there was going to be a slight shift in strategy and we were comfortable with it. You know, it was never a, it was never a big issue. I mean, we had times where we would have three guys padded up to go into bat next. It wasn't like um, – you know, you batted three, you batted four, and you batted five. We we looked at the situation in the game. We picked up the 
um, the, the intel that was available to us, um, and we would make a snap decision just like that, you know, and be comfortable in the decision whether whether it was right or wrong. And I think it's an incredible uh, learning tool from from a leadership perspective because when you get into that space and you've got people that back you, even if you don't get it right, mm. you end up making much more accurate decisions along the way because you're not you don't have the fear of the mistake. Yes. And um, so we we were comfortable with that and. That particular incident was actually a strategic decision. Um, a couple of the senior players felt that we wanted to have a right-hand, a left-hand, a combination, which we had spoken about all the time, um, mm. especially against Muru Litran, who was one of their threats in their team in that final. Um, so, the, so, you know, sending uh, uh, MSN early was, was, a, was a strategic move, although I felt there was a lot more attached to it because here was your captain. Um, prepared to go in a situation still with 160 odd runs to get, mm. um, which was not where we liked to bat him. We wanted him to plan A was always for him to finish later. But that's MS Dhoni for you. You know, he fronts up to the pressure. He fronts up to the big moments. So sure. he, 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 had, he had a fairly quiet World Cup. He hadn't got a huge amount of runs. Um, but cometh the hour, cometh the man. You know, and you've got to understand the individuals that that can do that. Yeah, so that's quite literally the example of pick me, coach. I'm ready, <laughs> and, and he yeah, delivered. I'm ready, I'm ready to go. But as I said, you know, we it was a strategic decision. It wasn't just a mm. emotional one. Um, we felt it would have been better to have a right hand, a left hand, a combination at all times at the crease. That was one of the one of our key strategies in selection as well, is just to make sure, you know, we had a good mix of left hand and right handers in the team. So, last question about the World Cup before I move into some other things. What was it like working with someone like Sachin Tendulkar in his home ground? I mean, he's, he's the master. Uh, he's, he's almost a deity there. Uh, how, do you, how do you steer and guide this person, knowing that this person is so capable already? How was that relationship for you? Well, the one thing I really enjoyed about Sachin, and we formed a close friendship over the, over the years, was um, you know, a man who had an unbelievable 20-year international career by the time I got there. Um, his willingness to keep learning, his willingness to keep improving, and and his insatiable desire to it's just to to be in love with the game as much as he can. And by his own admission, he had said he had fallen out of love with the game. Oh. He'd found the game quite hard work. Um, so it was certainly my job as a coach of the team to make sure he had the time of his life. And um, <laughs> in the in the in the three years that I was with the team, he got eighteen international hundreds. Yeah, eighteen. In three years, that's amazing. Um, so, so he, including a a first ever double hundred in ODI cricket. So he's, it was an incredible working with him. The his humility around his learning, um, for someone that's so good, who who you would think would have all the answers, mm. he was still willing to ask the questions, and I really loved that about him. It does, doesn't that strike you as uh, you know? There's lots of examples of these people seemingly. You, you ask them the question, but they're the ones that often turn it back and say, help me just improve a bit better. You know, I've still got more to learn. I've still got more to learn. And uh, another classic example. Absolutely. And just, just the ability to, you know, to accept um, people seeing his game in a different way, you know, and, and, and wanting to improve. So you went into India with this plan, a plan A and build. Did you have a plan B if plan A didn't work? Was that in the final? No, no, it's just your approach to the job in the beginning was to just scout around and build up. Did you have a, a plan B if plan A didn't work? <laughs> um, no, to be honest <laughs> with you. It was, <laughs> it was uh, yeah, it was, you know, I think, I think every one of us as well, we, we kind of sometimes go into the dark where we're not sure. And for me, my life's kind of been around that, to be honest with you. I like uh, being in slightly uncomfortable places where, you know, where, you, where you're not sure uh, what's, what's coming around, you know, and maybe I'm just wired that way. And um, I just find you can sometimes do your best work in that space. Yeah, well, certainly we're in the, in the current scenario. A lot of us find ourselves in that space. Yeah. Okay, Gary, a wonderful way to end that, uh, that time in India. You know, you literally you finish up, wrap it up, win the World Cup and come back to South Africa. And, uh, and then an opportunity presents itself once again to get involved in South African cricket. I know uh, an aspiration reading your wife's book to, to coach South Africa was one of those dream jobs for you. And, uh, and tell me about that experience of getting involved with South African cricket again. 
Yeah, I mean, as you rightly say, you know, it would be a dream to, you know, I played 11 years for South Africa and then to come back and be the coach, um, you know, was certainly a, a great uh, feeling. Um, it was a tougher job than the Indian job, uh, funny enough. I think obviously uh, for a lot of fairly easy reasons to understand, I think, you you know, I was more all in as a South African. Um, I found the South Africans very different to coach to than the Indians. Um and 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 required different things of me. Um, but saying that, I think uh, uh, my my focus of attention, because we were still four years out from a World Cup when I started with the South Africans, um, when I looked at the team and across the formats, I realised that the Test team was was kind of primed to be the best team in the world. You know, great players, and I tend to work much better with senior players. I think my coaching style is more collaborative, so I like to canvas idea and opinions. And then run, you know, and and then run with the best one rather than working with a a bunch of younger players who are looking for more guidance. So that worked quite well. Graham was a highly successful captain already when I started, um, and the and the test team just wasn't quite firing like it needed to, you know. Um, so we we really focused our attention on building a two-year plan with the, you know, with the test side. And that two-year plan was we wanted to come out the other side of it, not not losing a test match, you know, pretty much. Just like, can we win for two years or not lose for two years? And uh, I think we lost one test match in two years, and it was an amazing effort. We brought in Vernon Philando, who had an immediate impact into the team. Um, Dale Stain, uh, we, we decided not to play him too much one-day cricket because we wanted him fresh and ready for test matches. Mm. And then you obviously had Graham, who was so primed to take this team to – win in England, win in Australia, become the number one test team in the world, beat anyone that came on our shores. And um, we stumbled in the first hurdle where we lost to Australia in a test series. Yeah, um, um, in, Sorry, we drew the series. We didn't win it. We lost the first test. Uh, we won the first test. You remember we bowled uh, Australia out for 40 in the second innings. <laughs> and they were 19 for nine at one point, And we, went, we were behind the game there and won that. And then, yeah, and then after that, we just started to really get some good flow going and the, and the guys played really well. I'm putting a picture up of, uh, I think it was the Australia Tour where you got a trophy and you managed to get four tours, uh, victorious in, in four tours and uh, three, like a hat-trick of it all. I mean, what a great time. So the people obviously bought into the vision. You said it was a bit difficulty, a bit difficult. You have to upskill yourself with a new skill. You figured out how to coach the Indians. Coaching South Africans is a different beast. And, uh, but the results are there. You, uh, you've managed to, to get people to buy in. And then not an easy decision, once again, at the end of this time, coaching South Africa. Um, and then family comes first. I mean, tell us about the thought processes of switching this off. I mean, seemingly you're enjoying it now because it's, it's, it's the, the fruits of your labor are there. The, you're a South African. South Africa is doing well. And there's a World Cup just ahead. But uh, back, to, back to family. Yeah, Alex, it was a it was a tough call, you know, a really tough call, which uh, um, you know hit myself and my wife between the eyes like like no other. It was you know in 2012, um, I retired in 2013, but in 2012, I'm 260 days away from home, you know. Yeah. So um, you know, whilst the family were traveling through that time and we could see each other every now and again, it wasn't a lifestyle that was had any longevity attached to it, especially with a young, with a young family. And I'd always said to the, to cricket South Africa that, um, you know, I will, I will coach all formats um, under a two-year contract, or I'll just do one-day one-day cricket under a four-year contract. Okay. And they, and they said to me, no, they, they would like us to, they would like me to coach. Well, so I said, oh, let's go for a. Let's just go for a two-year, and then mm. we'll see where we are. And by the end of the two years, I was blown. I was exhausted. Okay. Um, I was loving the coaching, um, as I always have done. I was loving the work, but I was um, becoming depressed because I couldn't see my family. I just mm. my kids were my kids were growing up uh, without their dad, you know. And mm. it was it was too much to bear. I, I had one or two very dark moments in in hotel rooms. Oh, sure. <laughs> um, and just thinking, what am I doing here? And uh, yeah, so you know, it was a it was a calculated, really calculated move. My my wife said, "You're mad." She said, "Keep working. We'll we'll make it work." Um, and I said, "No, I've got to make this call. I've got to be brave around this. You know, I've got to show some courage and 
courage and my convictions and go, this is where I want to go. So, yeah, I made the call amidst some criticism and um, I had to go and stand up in front of the Cricket South Africa board and give them the reasons why I didn't want to carry on. Oh. Um, and um, it wasn't it wasn't an easy process, but I you know when I, when I reflect back on it, it was the right decision for that moment in time. Sure. Now, now you mentioned there that you were you were just depleted by then. I know it was obviously a taxing three years with the culmination in India, and you kind of jumped into South Africa in another two years. Was it the combination of the two? Or was it particularly hard? coaching South Africa or was it just the, the whole bunch of factors altogether? Why were you more depleted at the end of that two years than after the India? Yeah, I think it was a culmination. You know, when, when I started with India, uh, my oldest was four years old. Okay. You know, when I finished, uh, you know, when I finished with South Africa, um, March on five years, he's nine years old, you know, so it's a uh, suddenly now and I, and I've already seen him, you know, so, mm. so I think it was the realization came and I didn't want to be, I didn't want one of those um, completely absent fathers. I mean, we we understood both sides. You know, this is my job. This is my industry. Mm. I've got to keep working. Mm. I can't not, I can't suddenly just say, well, I can't work anymore because I need to be at home all the time. Sure. Um, and that's when the kind of T20 leagues became quite appealing because, you know, whilst you can't make as big a difference as you can at international level, you can still add value to a team over a shorter space of time. Mm. Okay, well now um, I want to just also touch on some things there. So you, you've now stepped away from the international coaching regroup at home, but you've also got Gary Kirsten Cricket, that's your high-performance coaching going on there too. But you're also obviously quite a, a celebrity, and uh, if you uh, make yourself famous in India with Indians, then that's a big chunk of the world that knows your name too. And you've done lots of keynote addresses, and you've been involved in um, you know, leadership and mentorship programs. And, uh, you know, you've, one particular incident I want to bring up is the University of the Free State Rector, Jonathan Janssen, mentioned that that was the most meaningful and inspirational message on leadership I have ever heard. Tell me about that day. <laughs> well, you, you, you're going to put me in a spot, yeah, Alex, because I can't remember. <laughs> I, can't remember. <laughs> I, do, I do remember going to the university and, and meeting up with a, with a group. But as you have mentioned, I, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate since... You know, since I got back from India, um, I've probably done over 200 leadership presentations. And, um, you know, it's been a real privilege to be in that space because um, I think I've, I've, I'm learning more than, more than anything. So I'm not quite sure what I said that was relevant <laughs> at that time. But hopefully, hopefully I mean, I, I, whenever I go into those spaces, I want to make a contribution. So hopefully I was able to add some value. And do you enjoy that public speaking and leadership and mentorship and motivational talking, that side of the game? Yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy facilitation more than that. I enjoy learning with others. Um, I'm not so sure that I'm uh, – I, I don't like motivational talks and stuff like that. I, I enjoy um, being provocative and curious and just throwing ideas and concepts out and, and brainstorming and challenging because I – I think every industry requires different kinds of leadership at different phases, you know. So I'm always interested to know what kind of leadership suits a particular environment at a particular time. Mm. And um, I've certainly learned as I've gone on this leadership journey that uh, um, the one thing, the one thing I will make a statement on, however controversial it is, (laughs) is that leadership for me is the differentiator in any environment in any organization any group of people any team the quality of the leadership will determine the success of that organization that for me is controversially <laughs> I've, I've got, i'm going to stand up on the parapets and, and announce that because i've seen enough stories of both ways i've seen enough stories of the most the inappropriate leadership mm-hmm. um, and then obviously you know very appropriate leadership and, I, and for me it's a moving target I think leadership blueprints are sometimes quite uh, dangerous because often I'll look at a blueprint and I'll say, well, I can't, I can't lead like that. That's not authentically who I am. Sure. I can't be that person. Mm. But maybe for a certain in- environment, it works really well. Yeah. Okay, so tell me then what's happening now with Gary Kirsten Cricket. High performance coaching, um, you know, in the, in the space of high performance around the world, we see that the, the principle of incremental gains, you know, made famous 10 odd years ago with the cycling team Sky. Um, how do you relate to high-performance teams, incremental gains, your preparation, your execution with precision, and your review? What kind of concepts do you work on regarding incremental gains and your high-performance outputs? 
Yeah, I think for us in high-performing teams, as, as weird as it sounds, I mean, we would we would always, uh, at the beginning of a campaign, put up on the wall where we wanted to go. And I think every high-performing team needs direction. You know, you need to know where you're going. But once that, that, flip, that flip chart is, or that piece of paper off the wall is written, um, you know, it doesn't get to refer to again because, you know, it's easy to kind of talk about where you want to go in six months' time or a year's time or even for some of these campaigns, eight weeks' time. But it's how do you get there that's that for me is the most important, you know. And uh, so we'll often refer to, you know, we process is more important than the results because as sporting teams, you cannot rest on your laurels on the back of a result. You know, you win a mm-hmm. game, so now you do something different. Or you lose a game and you do something different. So for us, excellence sits in how we wake up in the morning. Excellence sits in how we eat breakfast and 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 what is our routine from you know from the moment we we wake up um so we're trying to we, we're trying to um it's one click on the flywheel we're trying to tick every box that we can to make sure that by the time we reach the performance or match time we've given ourselves the absolute best chance of succeeding and there's no guarantee in sport to success and that's why sport is sport um, because you just cannot guarantee that, uh, you know, that, that you're going to win more games than you're going to lose. Um, but what you will do is the most successful teams find a way um, through their systems and their processes that they will build some excellence which will reflect in the results. And I think that's always that's – always, and that's what we as coaches, that's what we're looking for. When I, when I research – success stories um i was reading something on how liverpool um you know how they train you know how Mm -hmm. they do their little six aside soccer games and how intensely competitive it is and how important it is for 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 the group that they that those games are competitive that Mm -hmm. there's no holds barred and there's no expense spared to make sure that they're competing harder with each other than they're competing with the opposition so i love those little kind of success stories and i think Every leader is is just looking for excellence in everything they do, whether it's whether it's uh, preparation, whether it's in how do you reflect, how do you debrief, mm. how do you plan, and how do you, and I mean that for me is is the learning cycle. You know, you 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 reflecting, um, you then debriefing, you then planning ahead, you then going to practice, and you play the match again. You know? So it's you got to complete you got to complete the cycle, and that and and as professional coaches we that's all we do you know we just we just spend our days making sure that we just we go through everything yeah you you mentioned there click on the flywheel another good book uh, good to great jim collins is wonderful and it's also got that short uh, the flywheel um thanks so you also talked about uh waking up with the with the mindset of winning or or, of excellence so what is the day in the life of you i mean in this day it's a bit different right now but you've got your exercise window what is your kind of routine at the moment gary Um, well, I, I like to stay busy, so we, we're doing a lot of different – I've got a lot of moving parts at the moment in my, <laughs> my life. I run a – we're running an online um, coach education course at the moment um, for 20 um, aspiring young coaches, and that's taking up a serious amount of my time. Okay. Um, but it's been great because what I've been doing is I've been touching base with a lot of coaches around the world over Zoom um, or Skype or – any one of these platforms and um just 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 connecting you know and just getting to find out what their best thinking is on various things so that's been fun um i run a foundation where we work with uh, um um uh, township coaches and we're building township cricket in kailicha in cape town hopefully to the next level we've built a full-on artificial cricket field the first of its kind in a township oh wow cost us uh, five million rand to build but it was a it was a it's a it's a great journey that we're on there obviously it was everything's been stalled now over the, over this covid period so sure. um yeah and then i still coach teams you know i do i'm i'll do the south african t20 league at the end of the year I've, i'm doing the 100 competition which has now been postponed it's the start of a new competition in england so i'm very fortunate to be in all sorts of different places, but I have a, a lot of moving parts. I'm a <laughs> fanatical mountain biker, so I've got to I've got to find time to to do that most days. Um, but I try and I try to stay busy. Put it away. <laughs> it sounds like very busy. Sounds like a, my kind of life too. 
Uh, Gary, uh, last question for you. What is your top tips for creating a high-performance team? Yeah, that's as I said, I don't think there's any blueprint or framework. I do think that there are certain fundamentals that high-performing teams have no matter where, where they are or who they, they're from. And I would say I would say that um, a high-performing a high individual, which I think would reflect into a team, they are very intentional around everything that they do. So when they come to when they come to practice, there's an intensity around their practice and there's an attention to detail around it. And um, it's incredible when you see high-performing teams operate like that. It's almost like their days aren't wasted. Mm. There's nothing. Everything that they do is geared towards being the best of the best. There are no shortcuts. There's no, um, I'm going to take the easy road. Because um, they know that if they do, they're going to get exposed. And I think um, professional sport creates teams because there's so much of a demand on winning or losing, um, um, leaders of these of these teams know that they have to go through every little bit of detail that they need to go through to make sure the team's ready for success. Mm. And it's beautiful to watch because no one's taking shortcuts. So where are we finding the competitive advantage? Well, <laughs> you know, yeah. we we're all in the high performance space, so we're looking for, you know, either in recruitment, uh, it might be. Um, some talk about culture and create, building a magnificent culture where individuals can all thrive in that culture. And that's something that's very dear to me because, you know, we, we've got two facets. One is the art of coaching. The other one is the science of coaching. Mm -hmm. And I think in science, you build knowledge around your skill, skill sets and you, you can build more knowledge. But the art of coaching is how do you take the knowledge and how do you apply it to a group of people and make them the best that they can be as individuals and as a team. And I love the art of coaching because I think every environment is requires slightly something different of you as a leader. Mm, well, that's fascinating. Gary, I think we could probably talk for another two hours. I've really enjoyed this time, but I tell you what, why not next time you're in Joburg and the world settles down back to normal, come down to South African Airways and we can show you what a high performance Airbus looks like and we'll give you a spin in the Airbus and you can, uh, we can take the conversation from there. I'll take that up. Thank you, Alex. <laughs> Thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it, Gary. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I'm excited to have you on this journey with us. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and remember to subscribe to the show to catch weekly episodes so that you can build your high-performance team.